Alan Jones, direct to the people, right across Australia. Well, good evening. Now, this is our last broadcast for the year, I have to tell you, though we will be able to keep in touch with one another via the website, alanjones.com.au. I'll be posting material on my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia. As I had said to you many times, this is a pioneering initiative, digital media. And to access the program, which is free, it's very simple, you go to the website, alanjones.com.au, or if you've got a smart TV, turn onto your, your YouTube and just search for Alan Jones Australia, and it's all there. Now, you can watch the program while lying on your lounge. I'm delighted to say that we have viewers from all over the world. So good evening to you. The response has been astonishing. Tell your friends to join us. You can make comments, of course, and you can share what you like with your friends. Today, amongst other things, we'll look at two aspects of this time of the year. It is a holiday period, but it's also a time of great Christian significance. I'll have a look at both of those. I'll talk to the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, the Energy Minister Angus Taylor, sorting out ad blue problems with the truckies. And as a Christmas special, but separate from tonight's program, I'll be posting on my website my Christmas message and an interview with the Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher. To the travel issue first, and I've tried to speak responsibly to viewers everywhere about the new variant of the virus, Omicron. The National Cabinet is meeting today, or has met today, and thankfully there is some responsible talk coming out of this. Let me repeat what my reading so far tells me. I've mentioned the data from South Africa where Omicron was first identified, though the virus didn't originate there, but many infected have not developed symptoms. An infinitely smaller proportion than the Delta virus require oxygen, and a far smaller proportion need hospital treatment. Now, I never suggested there wouldn't be new variants of the virus, but this variant seems to be more infectious, hence the big numbers, but equally milder. So any alarmist argument that the hospital system will be overwhelmed is, at this point, pure alarmism. Evidence from South Africa indicates this is not the case, and we are a heavily vaccinated country. In other words, with vaccination, we may have a surge in cases, but a much smaller increase in the number of patients in need of critical care. Now, Nick Cater from the Menzies Institute, to whom I spoke the other night, made the valid point that I quote, 57,000 or so new cases in New South Wales since the state passed the 80% vaccination two months ago has revealed that the number of COVID patients in intensive care has fallen at the same time, from 137 to just 26. Similarly in Victoria, with approximately 68,000 new cases since they met the 70% threshold on October 21, but the number of ICU beds occupied has fallen from 141 to 81. Now, the figures give no justification for panic. National Cabinet has reportedly reassured today that Australians are less likely to become severely ill or die from Omicron, with only 37 Australians who've caught the variant, currently hospitalised, and no confirmed cases admitted to intensive care units. As Greg Hunt, our Federal Health Minister, has sensibly said, the best protection is to be vaccinated. And if you're eligible and due for your booster, now's the time to come forward. And remembering that the infectious disease expert from the ANU, Professor Peter Collignon, has constantly told us, and I quote, cases are not the issue. Hospitalisations are, and to date, he says, the figures give significant cause for optimism. Full marks to Prime Minister Morrison, who has said, we are not going back to lockdowns and we're not going back to shutting down people's lives. We're going forward to live with this virus with common sense and responsibility, and there'll be other variants beyond Omicron. Taking a leaf out of Dominic Perrottet's book, the Prime Minister responsibly said, we have to move from a culture of mandates to a culture of responsibility. And again, Professor Peter Collignon strikes that note, arguing the Omicron panic was an overreaction and evidence in South Africa and England shows the Omicron variant was not causing a disproportionate number of vaccinated people being admitted to hospital. And the majority of people, he said, admitted into intensive care were unvaccinated. Professor Peter Collignon added, I think a lot of the fear levels being induced from some of my colleagues is out of proportion to the risk posed by the new variant and the fear level in the community, he says disturbingly, is more now than it was a year ago, even though he says we're in a much better position. 
He went on, we've got over 90% vaccination rates in most states. He said there is no evidence to suggest the vaccine is not working in the real world. It's summer here in Australia and we have to date, he said, nothing to date to suggest, I'll say that again, nothing to date to suggest that Omicron is causing more hospitalisation or death than indeed Delta. Look, I think there's an expectation that the vaccine would stop the spread of the virus altogether. But as Professor Collignon says, the point of the vaccines is they'll stop people from getting sick and dying. And the University of Melbourne epidemiologist Tony Blakely reaffirmed that when he said, quote, encouraging that early evidence suggests that Omicron is less virulent. And the appropriately qualified New Queensland Chief Health Officer, Dr John Gerard, formerly the Director of Infectious Diseases at the Gold Coast University Hospital, has also said, and I quote him, the vast majority of COVID-19 patients were experiencing minimal symptoms and only one Omicron case is in intensive care. The issue is, as Professor Collignon has said, the evidence in South Africa and England has shown that the Omicron variant was not causing a disproportionate number of people being admitted to hospital. And he said the majority of people admitted into intensive care were unvaccinated. Well, now to the holiday issue and travel. As I drove through Sydney yesterday, I couldn't believe the queues of people literally stretching for more than half a mile. The reason being that if you're travelling in a state, you better check the rules for re-entering. Now, Queensland's a bit of a problem. You've got to be fully vaccinated. You need a negative PCR test within 72 hours before arriving in Queensland. And I've got no doubt that is why people were queuing up. And you'll have to have another PCR test on day five after you arrive. And if your Christmas celebrations are just over the Queensland border, if you're fully vaccinated, you'll be able to move freely across the border, but you'll need a border pass. However, anyone with plans to spend Christmas in Victoria, good news. They'll be able to freely enter the state without a travel permit, regardless of your vaccination status. If you're headed to the ACT, and given that as at December 16, there are no longer any high-risk geographical areas within Australia, if you're going to the ACT, you just need to be fully vaccinated. If you go to Tasmania, you won't be required to quarantine if you're fully vaccinated, but you will have to register your travel with the government. South Australia are welcoming all fully vaccinated travellers, but you have to complete an entry check SA application 14 days before you enter South Australia. In the Northern Territory, everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome is fully vaccinated and people unable to be vaccinated, like children under 12, but everyone will be required to complete a border entry form, Northern Territory this is, no more than five days before they arrive. And in WA, you'll most probably miss out on a Christmas roast because you have to quarantine for 14 days. Now, look, the disturbing rider is this. In a nation where the Prime Minister has said that vaccinations are not mandatory, most states and territories require travellers to be fully vaccinated before entering. It seems we still haven't resolved the dilemma of the two-class nation, those who are vaccinated and those who are not. But the Christmas message in relation to all of this, on the roads and with your health, is pretty simple. Follow the rules. It'll help you stay out of trouble. As we come to the end of the year, geopolitically, it's hard to escape the conclusion that the weakness in American leadership, and I'll have a further word to say about that later, is juxtaposed against the increasingly confident muscle flexing of China and Russia. The latest manifestation of this is, sadly, in Hong Kong's recent legislative elections. These were the first elections since Beijing dictated that only so-called patriots could govern the city. Foreign ministers from Australia, the US, Britain, Canada and New Zealand could only offer vacuous platitudes talking about the erosion of the democratic elements in the electoral process, but the words mean nothing. The foreign ministers issued a statement last Monday night saying, quote, actions that undermine Hong Kong's rights, freedoms and high degree of autonomy are threatening our shared wish to see Hong Kong succeed. Since the handover, candidates with diverse political views have contested elections in Hong Kong. This election has reversed the trend, unquote. I mean, it's meaningless. It's just rhetoric. This was the first election under a new political blueprint that China imposed on Hong Kong in response to those massive and often violent pro-democracy protests two years ago. Now, under the new Patriots-only rules, the number of directly elected politicians in Hong Kong has been reduced from 35 to 20, even though the legislature has been expanded from 70 to 90 seats. All candidates had to be vetted by a largely pro-Beijing committee before they could be nominated. 
The result was any meaningful opposition was eliminated before the election process began. As a result, Hong Kongers turned out in historically low numbers to cast votes. Figures showed only 30.2% of the electorate voted, the lowest since the British handed Hong Kong over to China in 1997. Needless to say, candidates loyal to Beijing won a majority of the seats in Sunday's election because the laws were already changed to ensure that only pro-Beijing patriots could run the city. The largest pro-democracy party in Hong Kong, the Democratic Party, fielded no candidates for the first time since the 1997 handover. Under new election laws, incitement to boycott the voting or to cast invalid votes could be punished by up to three years in jail and a $36,000 fine. It'd be a brave person who could argue that democracy isn't dead in the once vibrant Hong Kong and could Taiwan be next? Well, look, I mentioned last night what I inferred as a veritable shambles in relation to the Labor Party's so-called climate change policy. You will recall Barry Jones, the former ALP president, splendid intellect, former quiz king and federal MP, described the policy as being politically dumb. Now, I agree with that, but not for his reasons. You might remember Barry Jones said, quote, have we nothing to say to millions of young people, many of whom will vote for the first time in 2022, and who regard climate change as the central issue, unquote. Well, as I said last night, Labor are saying plenty to these young people. You merely have to listen to the uneducated Greta Thunberg. And we're shamefully frightening young people witless. Then you've got Chris Bowen, the opposition climate change spokesperson, saying, and I quote, every Australia feels the impact of a change in climate, from the Western Sydney households with soaring electricity bills, from increasing heat waves, bushfire ravaged communities, or agricultural families dealing with prolonged droughts and falling farm productivity. I mean, this is plainly alarmist nonsense. As I said last night, they're forecasting a very hot Christmas in Perth. Does Chris Bowen blame that on climate change and tragedy and death in the Philippines from a massive storm? Is that climate change or just a tropical depression? And the flooding in Indonesia, is that climate change? These alarmist messages are often without proof. And I mentioned the book that Patrick Moore has written, the co-founder of Greenpeace, called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and the Threats of Doom. And he says... It dawned on me one day that most of the scare stories are based on things that are invisible, like carbon dioxide or very remote, like polar bears and coral reefs. Thus, the average person cannot observe and verify the truth of these claims for themselves. They must rely on the activists, the media, the politicians and the scientists, all of whom have huge financial and or political interests in the subject. He said, this book, his book, is my effort after 50 years as an independent scientist and environmental activist to expose the misinformation and outright lies used to scare us and our children about the future of the earth. That's Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, who expresses doubt that human activity and carbon dioxide emissions are the main cause of global warming. And remember I told you that he argues that the scientists who said that he had misrepresented their findings or conclusions were just CYA merchants. CYA, pardon the language, short for cover your ass. And as he explained, the last thing these so-called scientists would want to be associated with is climate scepticism because, quote, you're all, out, all of a sudden, he said, out of research money. Well, Angus Taylor is the Federal Minister for Energy and Emissions Reduction and he joins us tonight. Angus, thank you for your time. Are we going to have another election on this wretched and discredited issue of climate change? I mean, people listening to us tonight know that every party that proposed all these so-called solutions for 10, 20 and 30 years down the track has never won the support of the electorate. What are you going to do? Well, sadly, I think Chris Bowen is adopting policies which are going to raise the cost of energy for everyday Australians, uh, destroy jobs in heavy industry. And, and we oppose those policies, Alan, so we may well have uh, this as a central part of the debate in the upcoming election. But I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to compromise on affordable, reliable energy. It has been a real battle over recent years to ensure that we get the supply coming into the market, but we've contained electricity prices from when we first came into government. It's been a hard slog, I've got to tell you. Uh, they doubled under Labor, and uh, you will see that again under Labor. Um, th they are claiming all sorts of things about their climate policies, which are patently false. Chris Bowen confuses the retail price from the wholesale price. He doesn't know the difference. But at the end of the day, I keep it very simple. 
Our number one goal has to be to deliver affordable, reliable energy for Australian households, small businesses okay. just, just and industry. Just, just let me take and, Chris Bowen. And anything that goes against that, we will oppose. Well, what about Chris Bowen now? Put it, keep it simple. Isn't he going to tax, admittedly, 215 of Australia's largest businesses, as if these costs won't be passed on to the consumer? Exactly right. That's exactly what he plans to do. Now, they've come up with all sorts of names to avoid calling it what it really is, yeah. Alan, yeah. which is a carbon tax on our industry and transport in this country. So who pays that carbon tax? The customers, middle Australia, Australians who buy food, Australians yeah. who buy yeah. building materials, you name it. If the transport costs go up, which is one of the areas they're planning to tax, uh, then everyday Australians pay the price. Now, Labor will continually try to call it all sorts of things, but it is what it is. It's a tax and will oppose that. Absolutely. Now, look, what do you then make of Patrick Moore? Because the co-founder of Greenpeace, I mean, they don't come any greener than Patrick Moore. He says, this book is my effort after 50 years as an independent scientist and environmental activist to expose the misinformation and outright lies used to scare us and our children about the future of the earth. Now, mental health is a big issue with kids, Angus, and they get this message every day that we, you and I, this generation are going to leave them a planet that's going to be destroyed because of our negligence. How do you address this? Well, I think we've, we've got to go back to the facts. And, you know, I'm a policymaker, so I see this particularly in the area of policymaking, where you will hear people say, we have these wonderful policies that are going to uh, reduce all these emissions and, uh, frankly, your electricity bill is going to go down. Now, that's exactly what Labor is saying, and it's a lot. It's a lot. They, they, they essentially make it up. And, sadly, so much of this area of policy has been fraught with people saying things and then doing another. Uh, we saw that under the last Labor government. Julia Gillard said there'll be no carbon tax. And, and of course, there was. Uh, uh, I think it's important to be straight with people. I think it's been important to be clear that affordable, reliable energy is important, that we will not do things that are going to trash our traditional industries, agriculture, our exporting industries, which are so important to this country. Well, where uh, are and you? the customer yeah. choice drives the uptake of low emission technologies. Yeah. This should be people's choices. Not right. government mandate. But see, Angus, where I get confused is, and I've been confused about this for the last 10 years, I mean, apparently the problem's carbon dioxide. Firstly, it's an invisible gas. It's not that stuff that you see on the TV that the ABC want to tell you, look at all this carbon. That's not carbon dioxide, it's invisible. And when you've got a gas that's 0.04% of the atmosphere, my God, it must be a potent gas to bring the whole mm. of the economy to a standstill. I don't understand what we're on about here. Well, I think you've got to take a sensible approach to it and, and you've got to avoid some of the fanaticism we do see on this. But I tell you, part of the issue here, Alan, is uh, people not actually identifying what the underlying uh, facts are. I mean, a third of, just under a third of global emissions now are coming from China. Correct. And we're responsible mm. for just over 1%, yes. as you know. Mm. And, and yet the debate revolves around countries like Australia. Now, yep. the truth of the matter is... Uh, that if China is a third of emissions and emissions are the problem, then China should be a very significant part of the focus. But we didn't see that at COP. We don't see that in the debate more generally. It's an opportunity to try to destroy industries that people don't like. Okay, There's talk a lot about, of people who okay. don't like our mining industry. Okay, talk, like talk, talk about destroying industries. What then do you say as the federal government's education person to the coal miner because we're an energy superpower. How long will the coal miner have his job? As long as customers want to buy their product. And this is the crucial point. We're not going to shut down these industries whilst customers still want to buy them. I'll give you an illustration of this. If we said tomorrow we're going to shut down the coal mines, Indonesia would expand their exports and China would still use as much coal. In fact, it would be dirtier coal than Australia. They get it from coal, somewhere else. Get it from really, they go to Indonesia or yep, somewhere else. Yep, yep. Yeah, probably Indonesia. And and so there's just there's a madness in some of the arguments around this that we hear from Labor that make absolutely no sense. So but the, liberal, but the liberal party, the minor, but the Liberal government in New South Wales says just that. Matt Keane says he's going to 100% renewables by 2030. I mean that means the coal mine is gone. Well, I, my point to the coal miner would be this: you are like any other business. If customers want to buy your product, 
you should sell a product, that product, and we're not going to get in the way. In fact, you know, we want our businesses in Australia selling to their customers, uh, whether it's onshore or offshore. And so the critical thing for them and for the, anyone in the gas industry, anyone in agriculture, because that's become a target, particularly livestock agriculture, sheep and cattle, is we've got to find the markets, we've got to have customers, and as long as you've got customers, we'll back you. And okay. that is a centrepiece of our Right. Product. So what do you say about the International Energy Agency, who's now told us only in the last week that the global demand for coal will reach record levels next year, driven by huge growth in China and India. Now, we've got massive debt. Why wouldn't we take advantage of this market demand? Are you, are you comprehensively committed to meeting their demand, which might mean opening other coal-fired power stations in Australia to manage, manage that export need? We're absolutely committed to managing that export need, and we've seen it. If you look at what's happening in, in just in the last few months, uh, the demand for both coal and gas has gone up globally in an extraordinary it way. It has. Global gas prices have, 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 mm. have near quadrupled from where they were, and we're seeing that in fertiliser prices. AdBlue, I think we're going to talk about that in a moment. Yes. And uh, Australia is meeting that need. And, and we should. That That is absolutely appropriate. Yeah. We provide a high-quality... I know. Uh, we're, an energy, we're an energy superpower. But wasn't Glasgow, we all flew over there, about retiring coal production? Well, well, you know, there were two pledges that a number of countries made in Glasgow. Uh, one was to eliminate coal and the other was to eliminate gas mm. and, and dramatically mm. reduce uh, mm. methane. We, yeah. we didn't sign on that, Alan, because it's the wrong way... To think about this, uh, mm. you know, you've got if you're a developing country uh, somewhere in Asia, any of the Southeast Asian countries, China itself, um, you have a commitment to deliver affordable, reliable energy, and that's going to require access to these natural resources Australia has for many years to come. Yes. Uh, so that that is our commitment. Okay. We're not going to shut them so down. So that being the, the case, the Labor Party has never been committed to these. No, resources. I agree. That being the case, though, isn't the International Energy Agency right when it says all evidence indicates a widening gap between political ambitions and targets on the one side and the realities of the current energy system on the other? Yes, and and that is. You know, I've made this point many times that the, the, the gap between ambition and achievement um, in COPs and in, in global climate politics has been a very significant one. Now, I happen to believe that a technology that uh, works for customers and customers want to buy, and you've got many of your viewers out there would have, from Australia, will have solar on their roofs, mm. about approaching one in three people. If they want to choose that technology, knock yourself out. Fantastic. But that's... That's the way energy transitions happen. That's how the way we've got rid of pollution mm. in the mm. past. I mean, when, when there was too much horse poop in the world mm. um, over 100 years ago, uh, the Model T Ford came out mm. uh, and helped solve that problem. Australians and people around the world have been solving issues with technology and choice, and that's a good way to go about it. But when people still want to choose our products, they should be able to choose those products. Right, so and, now, but the figures... The, the figures are very disturbing. I mean, if you want to talk carbon neutral by 2050, that's carbon dioxide, that will cost, and of all the people I've read, 16% of GDP. I mean, that for us, I mean, this is what Keane in New South Wales is talking about. He's going earlier than that. That'll cost us $200 billion a year. I mean, we've got banks saying they won't fund the expansion of Newcastle, the largest coal port in the world, and you've got this former governor of the Bank of England, I mean, virtually threatening the livelihood of businesses if they don't toe the line on climate change. He said, firms that allow their business models to transition to a net zero world will be rewarded handsomely. Those who fail to adopt will cease to exist. What is your government saying about that kind of philosophy? We're saying that you need to adapt to what your customers want to buy. Now, the Japanese and the South Koreans and others, they will, their demand for energy and their mix of energy that they buy from us will change in the future as it's changed in the past. And we need to supply that. We need to adapt with that. But what we're not going to do is tell them what to buy. We're simply not going to do that. Uh, and Australia has an important role to play in providing our customers with what they need. And that it means supplying them with meat. I mean, if you look at beef and lamb, there's a lot of people saying we should stop eating beef and lamb. No. As long as people want to buy beef and lamb, people should provide that. And, and that, that is absolutely central to our approach. I tell you what, though, 
I mean, we've done the modeling that says if you try to use the current technologies without any evolution in those technologies to get to net zero, you're going to need a $400 plus carbon tax. And we are simply not, we are not adopting a policy that imposes that kind of cost on the Australian people because that raises the cost of your electricity, your heating, your food and everything else you buy and we're simply not going to... Okay, but look, I thought I'd need half an hour with you tonight to discuss an issue which may no longer be an issue. I mean, we all know that the trucking industry is central to the national economy. There was this crisis two weeks ago about AdBlue. China banned the exports of urea, essentially in AdBlue, which is an additive to diesel which controls nitrogen oxide pollutants. Now, as, as our viewers know, trucks are central to the national economy. They won't start without this stuff. There was talk that we'd be running out of urea. Have you secured a deal with a local manufacturer that will guarantee continuing supply. Yes. Right. So, so just in the last couple of days, we've That's secured Incitec a deal pivot. with with Incitec. That's right. Who are a manufacturer of fertilizer, urea, which is used as fertilizer by farmers to produce a significant portion of our food. Uh, that urea can also be used to make AdBlue. We've secured a deal whereby Incitec can provide from January. Um, up to 100% of Australia's market requirement of AdBlue without compromising access to fertiliser for farmers. So this is a really good arrangement. It's local manufacturing. We're seeing a resurgence in local manufacturing right. in Australia at the moment. Yes. We're now above a million jobs in Australian manufacturing. First time we've seen that since the carbon tax was put in place by Labor. Um, and that's fantastic so, to see. Well, we just, want to see more of it. Yep. But in the process, we're yep. solving this AdBlue problem. Fantastic. We've still now, got some local issues to clean right. out. Where, where there's been a loss of supply yeah. at the local level. So it's very important for well, well, That's fantastic. Just before you go, because we're running out of time, but if Incitec Pivot can supply or guarantee, I think your word, quantities, quote, as needed, why are we getting 5,000 tonnes of your refined urea from Indonesia in January? We, uh, Incitec will be producing this from at full scale from late January. It'll be starting to scale up from mid-January. We want to be absolutely sure that we're not going to have a gap in the market. So this is something where Good on your the risk of something going wrong... Happy is so Christmas to the truckies. <laughs> we, we are going to be overly cautious. Happy, <laughs> happy, happy Christmas to the truckies. Angus, well That's done. It. Well done. Thank you for your time. I mean, there are big issues here. I want to raise with you next year this whole issue of gas, which, of course, is a fossil fuel as well, and they're jumping up and down about all of that. But for now, thank you for your time. Have a happy Christmas. See you in the new year. You too. Thanks for having me. Not at all. There's Angus Taylor, the Federal Energy Minister. Thanks, Angus. Well done. No, thanks, Alex. See you later. Bye-bye. We'll Bye-bye. Well, time for your say. Now, tonight is our last your say for the year. So thank you for tuning in during this pilot period of Alan Jones, direct to the people. We have thoroughly enjoyed your comments. Helen writes, good on you, Alan, speaking truth to power, and I'm with you regarding standing up for farmers and sound environmental decisions. Trish commented, you should be handling the education portfolio, Alan. Love the show. Now, Trish, <laughs> I'd turn the joint around in a week. I'd need no more time than that, I can tell you. Kate has said, thank God for Dominic Perrottet, the only politician with common sense. And bravo to Dr Nick Coatsworth. And John says, 8pm is the best part of the week, listening to someone with sense and fight. Thank you so much. And Keith commented, hooray. Love hearing from Peggy. Our American friends are very important to us. And Katie says, Prime Minister Morrison could have stopped all this fear-mongering. He's nothing more than a fence-sitter. I have to say he's coming good, though. He's made some good observations today, to his credit. Well, what you are saying in your thousands is that people are screaming out for individuals with political courage. Unfortunately, it is in short supply in Canberra and elsewhere. But anyway, that's your say for this Wednesday night. Now, keep commenting below and you can share it. We love hearing what is on your mind and we do read them, I have to tell you. But on the wider political front, if the Democrats are in trouble in America, and I'll come to that in a moment, is the Liberal Party in trouble in Australia? There is an election around the corner in Australia and in critical seats in New South Wales, no candidates have been pre-selected. To many, that would spell political suicide. How a candidate is to first get selected, then get to know the electorate, put an electoral team in place, all in a matter of weeks, simply defies common sense. You look at the March West Australian state election, where the Liberals, or the Coalition, won a two-party preferred vote of 30%. The Liberals won two seats and lost 11 
Well, I've now introduced for pre-selection a plebiscite model. In other words, let all the Liberal members vote. Christian Porter is retiring from the seat of Pearce, where the number of voters in that electorate are approximately 120,000. In the Liberal Party pre-selection for the seat of Pearce, roll up, roll up, if you're a Liberal member, and have a vote. Well, 54 did. And that was 40% of eligible voters. So are we saying that in an electorate of 120,000 people in Pearce, the number of Liberal people qualified to choose their candidate is no more than 130? And 54 turned up. Hang on. In the federal seat of Burt, B-U-R-T, in Perth's southeast suburbs, held by Labor, 11 delegates cast their vote for pre-selection. 11. In the federal seat of Cowan, in the northern suburbs of Perth, which is supposed to be a marginal seat, historically changing hands between the ALP and the Liberal Party, only 21 Liberal pre-selectors cast their vote. Here's Scott Morrison trying to win an election when he's already in minority government. He's got to hold every seat that he currently holds in order to win government and win some others. There was a swing against the coalition in the last federal election in WA of almost 4%. You've got the state election in March with a two-party preferred vote of 30%. Federally, they won 11 out of 16 seats in WA at the last federal election. How on any of these figures do they win 11 seats again? I don't know whether he realises it, but Mr Morrison is in deep trouble. And so, as I said yesterday, is the persistently deluded and cognitively deficient Joe Biden. A central component to his election was that he would do what his opponent couldn't do, follow the science and fix up coronavirus, work together. He said, we know what to do. Every instinct of the left laid bare that governments will solve the problem. When Biden talked about we know what to do, there were 527,000 726 COVID-related deaths in America. We know because he told us. He'd cite a card he carried with him every day, except that he didn't know what to do. If he has the card today, it'll show over 800,000 deaths. But he said he knew what to do. You just have to follow the science and trust the government. It is not the government that has turned around the coronavirus concerns, but private companies with vaccines and therapies, the same companies that left-wing governments want to regulate out of existence. But of course, Biden also said he could manage the economy. Well, I suppose manage is a fair word. He's managed to create the highest inflation in nearly 40 years. They've also managed, the Biden administration and his sympathetic acolytes in the States, they've managed a surge in violent crime. And then, of course, a Biden administration would manage the borders, wouldn't they? A border is a line separating two countries. Under Biden, is a border, a border is a border in name only. America faces chaos at the borders. And then, of course, the catastrophe of Afghanistan, where the Biden administration has managed, there's that word again, to demonstrate its rank impotence to the rest of the world. As Gerard Baker wrote recently, and I quote, it is not too harsh a judgment to say that this is a man who's risen to the top of American public life without a trace of accomplishment. When you've been in national politics for almost 50 years, wrote Gerard Baker, you ought to have achieved something, if only by accident. But this journeyman politician, when he wasn't getting almost all of the big issues wrong, was largely a bystander. Writes Gerard Baker, he is now a husk of a leader, a dangerous, debilitating figure who oscillates between displays of vacuous incoherence and weird, angry outbursts like a confused old man at the wrong bus stop. But then, of course, a heartbeat away from the presidency is Vice President Kamala Harris, who's demonstrated, and again, as Gerard Baker has pointed out, that she's simply another of Biden's many mistakes, perhaps the biggest one yet. As he says, it's a dismaying state of affairs that we must all pray nightly for the continued health of an inept president to avoid the calamity of a worse one. Well, if you're a Liberal supporter or an American voter, the political pictures in Australia and America are very unedifying. Well, look, how appropriate that in our last broadcast for the year, we should speak to the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. Through all the travails of this year, the clarity of Tony Abbott's thinking has provided genuine reassurance. Only this week he warned us correctly that but for Dominic Perrottet, we'd not be able to look forward to a decent Christmas and overseas arrivals would be stuck in two weeks' quarantine. As Tony Abbott wrote, and I quote, 
But for the new Premier's instinct for freedom, we'd still be living in a health-policed state where everything is subordinated to the overriding goal of minimising COVID cases and where everyone is expected to conform to surveillance, utterly unprecedented, his words, in free countries. Tony Abbott joins us, the former Prime Minister. Tony, thank you for your time. I mean, one of your central themes in all your writing in the last 12 months is that both politicians and freedoms have lost their way. Can you amplify that point? Alan, thanks for having me and congratulations on the new venture. Thank you. I, I, I am very relieved that our new Premier, Dom Perrottet, uh, building on the good work of Gladys Berejiklian, is refusing to panic in the face of the Omicron variant. Uh, obviously, COVID has been serious, but now that we've got something like 90% plus of the adult population vaccinated, we essentially have to get back to living a normal life. Uh, we cannot be dictated to by unelected health bureaucrats. Uh, we shouldn't be ordered around by officials on a semi-routine basis. Um, I know that uh, no one likes it when people get sick. Uh, no one likes it uh, when people succumb to illness. But sickness and death are a part of ordinary life. Um, this virus is going to be a part of our ordinary life uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, we are as protected as we are ever going to be and we just have to get on with things. And good on Dom Perrottet for understanding that and good on the Prime Minister for supporting him. Yes, well done. Look, you've travelled a lot this year in various capacities and you've made the point that when Melbourne became the world's most lockdown city, around the globe, you said, people wondered what had turned Australians, I think your words were, into a bunch of COVID neurotics. Now, are we heading in that direction with the headlines now with this Omicron? And all we hear about is cases when, in fact, I mean, hospitalisations and intensive care admissions are way down. Well, that's right, Alan. As of this morning, according to the media, we'd had about a 1,000 cases of Omicron and, as yet... Uh, not a single person in ICU That's right. with this particular variant. Now, uh, what matters is not the fact that people uh, have, have a virus. What matters is what's happening to the health system. And on the evidence thus far, uh, the health system is coping fine Absolutely. with this new variant. Now, it's very easy for uh, people whose only concern uh, is the state of the hospitals uh, to suddenly say, well, actually, we've got to close down because you never know what might happen in yes. two weeks, three yeah. weeks or four weeks' yes. time to the hospitals. But, but the job of government is to look at the big picture, not just to obsess on one element of it. And I think that uh, thanks to Dom Perrottet, uh, supported by the Prime Minister, we have finally got a decent sense of balance and perspective Absolutely. in our consideration Absolutely. Uh, of the COVID virus. OK, so the next question. Are you confident that the Premier can hold his nerve against the bedwetters? Look, uh, I know Dom Perrottet pretty well. He is a very robust individual. There are few people in our public life today who are as intellectually and as philosophically well-formed as him. Uh, he's got to be the Premier of this state uh, without... Uh, losing his convictions. Uh, I think if anyone uh, can hold to a sensible middle-of-the-road course when it comes to uh, maximising our freedom uh, as well as minimising our dangers, it's Don Perrottet. Well expressed. See, in, the, in that statement earlier with the piece you wrote, you said, a country that cannot bring itself to declare victory over a pandemic and get back to normal once its hospitalisation and death rates resemble those of the standard seasonal flu is a country where no-one will ever again be able to plan anything with confidence. Now, in relation to what you've called the unpredictable and the repeated upheavals, you tellingly say, as you were a former health minister, people will be more likely, and this is the real problem, isn't it, to die from cancer, heart disease, suicide, sheer loneliness and boredom, just so governments can reassure voters that they've at least saved them from COVID. That has already happened, Tony, hasn't it? it it's pretty clear uh, that a lot of treatments that should have been available to people uh, have been 
delayed uh, because of uh, the yes. focus on this particular virus uh, as a result of the pandemic. Look, we've always got to be careful about becoming addicted to a crisis. Now, I'm not saying, Alan, uh, that this wasn't serious, uh, and I'm not saying that crises don't sometimes require urgent, specific action. But we've now had 20 months to look at this. Uh, we've now had uh, the best part of three or four months very heavily vaccinated. At some point, we have to say, look, this crisis uh, is now as well managed as it is ever going to be. Uh, we have to put it behind us and get on with life mm. rather than uh, at the official level, at the governmental level, uh, remaining in that in that sense of the continuous crisis because let's face it uh, all of us uh, are prone to the temptations of power uh, and i guess as long as the crisis lasts uh, officialdom is exalted well in a democracy like ours we want stronger citizens uh, not just bigger government. Well done. You see, you, you make the point outstanding. You said one of the worst features of this has not been the impact on our health or our wealth, but what it's said about our attitudes. Just amplify that point because we just seem to have surrendered. Uh, and again, Alan, I, I, I don't want to say that this was nothing. Uh, certainly, if you go back to March, April last year, when we didn't really know what we were confronted with, I can absolutely understand uh, why there was a, uh, a, a real sense of crisis. Uh, but at some stage, uh, we have to appreciate, uh, as I said earlier, sickness and death are an inevitable part of life. Uh, we do our best to treat sickness. We do our best to minimise risk. Uh, none of us uh, want to shuffle off this mortal coil prematurely. But in the end, something is going to get all of us. Mm. And we cannot live our life in constant fear of death. Mm. Um, in the end, we have to be prepared to accept uh, all the normal risks uh, that life has for us if we are going to live life to the full. And Outstanding. Outstanding. I think, I th I think, I, I think there has been uh, a sense, at least from uh, some commentators and some quarters of officialdom, that it is somehow government's job to abolish all the natural shocks that flesh is heir to. And any government that tries to protect everyone in all circumstance is a government which will end up wrapping people up in such cotton wool that none of us will have a real life. Absolutely outstanding observations. Just a quick one on this before you go on the debt. I mean, this is going to take forever and a day. I mean, generations not yet born will be still paying off the debt. There's absolutely no doubt, Alan, that we will be living with the economic consequences of COVID uh, for a very long time. At the federal level alone, something like $350 billion extra uh, has been committed already uh, to deal with uh, various measures put in place to protect us uh, from, the, from the pandemic. Uh, I'm not saying uh, that nothing should have been done. Of course, a lot did have to be done. If government orders you closed... Uh, government has to look after you. But again, we've always got to appreciate that every single dollar that government spends is a dollar that it takes from us, the taxpayers. It either mm. takes from us today in taxes uh, or it takes from us tomorrow in the future taxes that are needed to repay the debt. So, mm. look, uh, uh, the economic consequences will be serious. They will be long-term. And this is not the only challenge that we are likely to face. Uh, we already are seeing a rapidly deteriorating uh, geostrategic situation. Uh, I think that our defence spending is going to have to go substantially beyond uh, the current 2% of GDP. So, look, um, we are going to have to face up to the fact uh, that sacrifice will be required from us uh, that's why the important thing now uh, is to avoid unnecessary spending and to try to ensure that our economy is rendered as efficient as possible. And thank God Premier Perrottet uh, mm. and Prime Minister Mor mm. Morrison understand that the last thing we need 
at the at the fag end of this yes, pandemic yes. Uh, is is yet more restrictions. Yeah, shutting down business. Just before you go, I've been dwelling on the theme this week since we started this brand new program. Firstly, about the surrendering of our freedoms, and you're right, Dominic Pirate has asserted that freedoms aren't governments to confer, but they are in fact a birthright. And the other question that we're seeking to ask is whether the Australia today is the Australia we would like it to be. What are your thoughts about answering that question? There's a sense in, in which, Alan, we are never quite our best selves. doesn't matter how good we are today, we want to be better tomorrow and the day after. What worries me sometimes is that a great country and a great people are sometimes let down by systems which are constantly telling us that we are irredeemably racist, irredeemably sexist, irredeemably unfair. Now, I look around our society after 60-odd years on this earth and I think in all the respects that count, we've never been better. Mm. Uh, the mm. one respect in which I think we are today deficient uh, is A, self-confidence as a culture and as a civilization, mm. uh, and B, courage as a culture and a civilization. We have far more to be proud of than we have to be ashamed of. And yet, if, if we're constantly apologising ourselves, eventually we lose the ability to stand up for ourselves. But and, see, and our country and mm, our civilization needs to regain uh, that wonderful self-confidence yes. which has enabled yes. countries like ours to do so much for the wider world. And that self-confidence, though, often derives from an education system which gives you the understanding that you have the appropriate knowledge to face the future. Now, you were a product of a Jesuit education, and as you said, you know, 45 years ago when you were 12 or 13 or whatever, where discipline and content was central to what you're doing. Are you worried about what's going on in the classroom? I'm sure that the vast majority of schools and the vast majority of teachers are doing a, a very good job. But obviously we look at the international standardised tests of academic performance where our national rankings are plummeting uh, compared to so many yep. other countries. Yep. And I also look at things like the proposed draft national curriculum and uh, I really worry when you've got a situation where every subject has got to be taught from an Indigenous, an Asian and a sustainability perspective. Now, uh, I'm all in favour of us studying uh, the Indigenous prehistory of Australia. I'm all in favour of us having a better understanding of Asian cultures. And yes, uh, we need to know all the necessary science to be good stewards of our country and our planet. But in the end, we have to be very careful about anything which is going to have the implicit, if not necessarily the explicit impact of telling people that our country is illegitimate, that other cultures are so much better than ours, uh, and that we are uh, some kind of environmental vandals as a nation. By any reasonable standards, by any fair-minded standards, uh, this country is second to none on all of those criteria Absolutely. and we should be proud of ourselves. Magnificent. Just keep talking. We miss you in the political world. You've made a magnificent intellectual contribution to this country and you'll continue to do it. Have a wonderful Christmas with you and the family, Tony, and we'll catch up in the new year. Good on you, Alan. There Thanks. he is, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Outstanding, isn't he? See, the marshalling of ideas, extraordinary. That's what... The political system has lost with the departure of Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister. Well, look, just before we go, some genuinely good news. Now, if I might say it again, deriving from the commitment by the New South Wales Premier to reasserting that freedom is our birthright, not something for government to reluctantly confer, what this has meant is that tourism in Queensland is breathing again. In the week since the borders reopened in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT, almost a quarter of a million people have flocked to Queensland. They say the figures will continue to increase. Apparently 30,000 people landed in or drove to Queensland last Monday alone. 30,000. Sadly, and may I observe perhaps ignorantly, there are still cancellations because of the alarmism around this Omicron. But 
right up to North Queensland in the Port Douglas area, the pickup has begun. On the Sunshine Coast, there are still vacancies, but tourists have flocked to Noosa, Mooloolabar and Caloundra chasing the sunshine. Some people are still nervous about their travel and their bookings. They shouldn't be. And of course, the Gold Coast with everything you'd want for a summer holiday. There's talk by Destination Gold Coast that visitors will deliver a much-needed $280 million boost to the local economy. And the Gold Coast Airport CEO, Chris Mills, has said they welcomed 52,000 passengers in the past week, even though passenger numbers at Australian airports are still well below pre-pandemic levels. Time to be optimistic. Let's learn to live with the virus and enjoy life. And that's what many farmers are finding with the bushfires of 2019 and 2020 behind them, rainfall upon them and seasons of hope have returned. An extraordinary story from Deep Creek. It's a little town near Casino in northern New South Wales. Bianca Tarrant and her partner Dame McGiveron, 26 years of age, they watched the black summer bushfires with a sense of despair as we all did. More than 70% of their drought-stricken land perished, but it rained on Christmas Day 2019. They poured their energy into a new business. They began selling cuts of beef to nearby families. The business has grown into a deluxe delivery service providing grass-fed and free-range beef, lamb, pork and chicken from 100 farmers to families all over Australia. They're now running a multi-million dollar meat subscription business called Our Cow. The orders are up 1,500% on last year, servicing about 20,000 households. I remember my father used to drive us nuts during the drought, simply saying, oh, you'd think it had rain. Well, the good news is it always does. For tourism, and especially those who've suffered in Queensland, and for the farmers, out of adversity, there always emerges opportunity. Make the most of it. Happy Christmas to everyone. Keep in touch with the website, alanjones.com.au, where I'll post my Christmas message and the interview with the Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher. And of course, on all the platforms, my website and my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia, wherever you share this content, we love hearing from you. We'll be back to begin the journey again in the new year. Let's say happy Christmas though, and not happy holidays. And remember the words of GK Chester, Christmas is built upon a beautiful and intentional paradox that the birth of the homeless should be celebrated in every home. Well, that's it. It's the time for me to say, by the way, before I go, to say thank you to my viewers and listeners for tuning in to this pilot run of Alan Jones, Direct to the People. Being the 22nd of December, from tomorrow, we're going to have a small break over the Christmas and New Year period. Our content in just six nights has reached around 2.5 million people. The response has been incredible. In the new year, we will be your voice. This is your home. So from the team here at Australian Digital Holdings, we wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll be back roaring in the new year. Good night.